Hello and welcome back to Comics Over Time, a podcast where we take a trip through the history of Marvel Comics with a focus on some of the important and interesting comic stories that inspired the Hollywood blockbusters of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Every two weeks we take a look at a batch of comics, then we watch the related MCU movie or TV show. And after we're done, we connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures and try and answer the most important of questions... Who told the tale best, the books or the screen adaptation? My name is Dwayne, and with me again this week, as always, is my good buddy Dan. Dan, fun week this week. I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation. Yeah, this this was a lot of fun, actually. And I think it was, it was interesting seeing how these dovetailed in with the movie. Kind of remembered that they actually worked together pretty well, but it was interesting seeing it actually after just rereading them. And man, is it good to just be back in the world of sort of this early Marvel continuity. Uh, this week we had it all the way back to 2013. This is the third, and at least so far, it's the last solo Iron Man film. Iron Man 3 has a plot that's taken directly out of the comics, as we read last week. Uh, the story elements that it has also caused more than a few complaints among longtime fans such as myself when I, it first came out. I can't out. imagine why, no. <laughs> and, and so this really, I think especially in retrospect now, becomes one of the more interesting and definitely one of the more polarizing of those early Marvel films. So, excited nice. to talk to you about this one and to see what you thought. So. Right. Well, before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit of, of comic books news. And actually, the first piece of news is really interesting in that it's Deadpool gets an Iron Man style armor in this unique sideshow statue. So there is a collectible coming out uh, probably early or in December 2022. Uh, the collectible company is unveiling this detailed look and unboxing video for a special edition sixth scale figure from Hot Toys. So Hot Toys is creating this it is a combination of Iron Man and Deadpool. It, it is Deadpool looking, but has like this Iron Man suit, which is which is great. It says the toy combines the Merc with the Mouth's signature red and black color scheme with Iron Man's arc reactor powered armor and repulsory weaponry. The armorized Deadpool features light up elements, assorted weapons and interchangeable hands for a variety of possible poses. It has uh, over thirty different articulations that you can that you can do throughout the the body, and it stands a little over thirty two uh, centimeters tall, so smallish, but still good enough size. And there is a lot of detail. And if this is something that looks interesting or sounds interesting to you, it'll set you back a mere four hundred and five dollars. So, uh, you ever gotten yeah. into figurines like this? I I, I know they're so big. But uh, this is I, and this is by Sideshow, the Sideshow Collectibles folks. Yes, they do spectacular stuff, not just for comic books, but for other movie stuff. Like in their website now, they've got a statue of the dude and they got some looks like some Pokemon stuff, all sorts of things. It is unreasonably expensive. So like if you <laughs> accidentally got yourself addicted to collecting this stuff then I would be in real trouble with your wife. And you think that <laughs> comic books are expensive. Holy mackerel. So, but yeah, 400 bucks. They are amazing. Some it, of these... It looks amazing. They, 
they look exactly like the actor. They're detailed, and some of them have all sorts of accessories and stuff. But no, I, in fact, uh, when we got done with Moon Knight, I bought the series of Pops figures for Moon Knight that came out, and those are pretty much the first collectible toys I've sure. ever purchased as an adult for anyone other than my kids. So <laughs> that's as far as my toe has dipped into the toys. Okay, and yeah, they're I pretty know. cool. They're sitting on my shelf. So there you go. Yeah, those those there's definitely a wider range of those sorts of uh, statues and figurines and things like that yep. that you get into of varying uh, looks and things. And but it's yeah. it, they it's are really fantastic. Some of some of those are really quite exquisite if you get a chance to. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I've I've avoided doing it because it seems like it is a slippery slope to poverty, essentially, <laughs> to get too far into that. Sure, 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 sure. So the other story this week is actually out of an Eternals comic. Uh, Eternals calls out Marvel fans who don't read the comics. Kind of, sort of, actually. It is part of Axe Judgment Day Omega number one, which is available in, in stores now. At the beginning of the issue, Makari transcribes the events of Judgment Day into a format of the Eternals Holy Scriptures, this newly rebooted machine that is Earth, Earth narrates it, saying, quote, You observe Makari, priest of the new wave. She writes in the traditional high eternal style. It is a form that merges images and words together in perfect alloy. To Eternals, this makes the highest of all art forms, though few cultures agree. And it's that few cultures agree that's some, that 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 uh, definitely is kind of the kind of the sticking point there. So, if you if you take kind of that description, uh, it's clear that there's there's um, definitely potentially some poking being done with when you have. You know, and we've talked about this. We have the like the MCU fans, we have the comic book fans, and the Venn diagram. The there is a a section of them that kind of cross over into both of those things, and and uh, it was it it was interesting to see that they're kind of you know poking at that just a little bit in the in this in this uh, current issue. Yeah, and that's not at all unusual. Comic books have, and comic book creators have, a long history of sort of having a chip on their shoulder about the fact that the rest of the culture is is disrespecting them and the like. And it's increasingly hilarious when you look at the fact we've essentially taken over popular culture and <laughs> yeah. you know, essentially completely kidnapped the movie industry and all the rest. But it's kind of an important part of the culture and the mindset of being a comics fan to a certain extent, and has been for decades, that we are somehow these defenders of this beautiful but underappreciated form. And I would liken it somewhat to being a Red Sox fan when I was a kid. That I was, <laughs> I was a fan of the Red Sox partly because they were cursed. And I loved the team because when they... They they never seem to be able to win. And after they actually won a series, I've never really known how to deal with that, you know? Yeah. It's hard to still be a Red Sox fan the same way when they were always winning. Now they're terrible again, and I feel much more comfortable rooting for them because <laughs> that's my Red Sox, yeah. right? 
And I think that's the same with comic books, that even when comics become more acceptable, when comics are winning awards for literature and all of this sort of stuff, there are a lot of us who are much more comfortable thinking of them as this underappreciated, underground form. And there's even a book called The Resting Development that was written by a scholar that I really enjoyed that talked about the idea that comic books too often are looked at as being in some sort of almost like teenage years where they're growing up to be fine literature. And he's like, no, they don't grow up to be anything. They're their own thing. To the extent that comics try to be novels, they're never going to get there because they're not novels. To the point they try to be fine art, like a painting, they're never going to get there because that's not their thing. They have their own strengths, and they are their own separate art that just has to be appreciated as itself. But yeah, he... He, though, is, is playing on tropes we've been at for years that nobody appreciates <laughs> yeah. or loves comics the way they should be. Yeah. And, and there, there are a lot of comic fans who I think would like it if more people actually read the comic book instead of just going to see it. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, one, one last thing. You had a, a note about DC that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, I mean, uh, we mostly deal with Marvel stuff, but just as a note... DC has a history of sort of just upsetting the apple cart every few years, and it looks like they might be doing that again. Uh, they're starting a new event called Dawn of the DCU, which over the last couple of years, they've had some events that have been relatively dark again and have had some serious things happening in their universe, in comics, not just in the in the movies. And supposedly... This is bringing us out into sort of a new birth and a, a slightly lighter and more positive age of the DC Comics universe for a while. Uh, it's also because of the fact that they are launching 20-some new titles and starting a lot of things over. A good jumping-on point, theoretically, for someone who might be interested in getting into the DC universe but has not wanted to, to deal with all the continuity. They will at least hopefully be providing a jumping on point again for folks. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So if you need another comic universe to, uh, to follow <laughs> through, there's one opening up over at DC. So. Sure, 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 sure. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the news. Should we jump in and talk about Iron Man 3? Bring it on. Let's do it. All right. So the, this is your spoiler warning. Yes, this movie came out uh, in 2013. So... You've had almost 10 years that you could have watched this, but we are going to be talking about the plot as well as uh, particular points throughout the movie. So if you have not seen it or want to see it again before we jumping into this discussion, please stop the recording now. Do that. Come back and uh, we will be here waiting for you. And with that, I'm going to jump into the film facts for this movie. Iron Man 3. The tagline is prepare for heavy metal i love that that's actually quite quite good mm -hmm. uh this movie was released may 3rd 2013 it has a runtime of 130 minutes it is in fact the longest standalone iron man movie in length box office take worldwide just over 1.2 billion with a b dollars and domestically it brought in 
four, just over $409 million on a budget of $200 million, up from its original $140 million. It got bumped up an additional $60 million after uh, the Avengers did so well at the box office. So they gave uh, director Shane Black some additional money to work with. Currently, it has an IMDb rating score of 7.1 out of 10. It stars Robert Downey Jr., Gwyneth Paltrow, Guy Pearce, and Don Cheadle. As I said, it was directed by Shane Black. Uh, you might know his name. He wrote Lethal, has writing credits that include Lethal Weapon, The Last Boy Scout, Last Action Hero, and The Long Kiss Goodnight, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which actually starred Robert Downey Jr., was his directorial debut in 2015. Uh, the screenplay uh, is credited with Drew Pierce and Shane Black. So Black pulled double duty in, in this film as well. So that is your film facts for Iron Man 3. Dan, do you want to jump through, jump to our our recap of the movie to bring everyone up to speed? Absolutely. Some good stuff. You'd be interested to talk about Shane Black a little bit and what you know about him. He's an interesting fellow. Done some cool stuff. So, two minutes. I don't know if I'm going to make two minutes, because there's a lot of things that happen, but I'm mostly not going to talk about the last 20 minutes of the movie, because it's all kind of just things exploding. So, we'll maybe make it. We start back in 99, when Tony Stark was partying with Maya Hansen and Aldrich Killian of AIM, the short for Advanced Idea Mechanics, tries to get their attention. Stark punks him, and talks with Maya about their research on Extremis and its regenerative properties. Killian waits on the roof and stews. We then go to the present day, where Stark is developing new armor. That's when he first sees the Mandarin's video threat. The Mandarin has hijacked American television network and has threatened the president. War Machine is then rebranded as Iron Patriot and instructed to help find him and bring him to justice. Tony has a panic attack, and Pepper reconnects with Aldrich. And I keep calling him, yeah, with Aldrich, uh, who's now less geeky and more wealthy. He's come to her to talk about extremists, which he now has working. Pepper's not interested because she's worried it's being weaponized. She has reasons to worry, as when Happy follows Killian's driver, he sees and interrupts an exchange of the extremist compound. Somebody explodes, people die, and Happy is badly injured. Mandarin takes credit, Tony threatens him, and gives him his address to his house. Mandarin blows up his house, and Stark ends up unconscious and on a semi-unplanned trip out to Tennessee. His armor's damaged and he can't use it. He's presumed dead, and Maya and Pepper are left outside his house and end up teaming up. Tony and a local kid named Harley visit a memorial to a local soldier who died in an explosion. Tony then ends up in a fight with a bunch of extremist-enhanced goons. He wins, even despite not really having his armor. He gets away with a file folder of information, and just as the Mandarin makes his next threat, uh, he tricks the president. Oh. oh. Tony then gets away with a file folder of information, just as the Mandarin makes his next threat, tricking the president into calling him. Tony finds out about AIM and extremists, which sometimes works and sometimes explodes the subject. We find out Maya is in league with Killian and the Mandarin, and Iron Patriot is taken in by a trick. Tony continues having panic attacks because of the New York attack, 
but still builds his own replacement armor before storming the Mandarin's Florida compound. He then finds the Mandarin, who's actually just an out-of-work actor named Trevor Slattery. Tony gets caught and is handed over to Killian and Maya. Maya's murdered in front of him. Tony and Rhodey escape only after Seven takes off the Iron Patriot armor. Seven blows up Air Force One and kidnaps the President. Tony brings out all of his armor. There's a huge fight between Iron Men, armors, and superpowered terrorists. And in the end, Pepper, who has been infected with the Escremis compound, comes out and saves the day. So, a little more than know. two minutes, but it, uh, yeah, does a pretty good job of explaining <sighs> everything that happened and in all its kind of craziness. Does not explain everything. No. <laughs> I, think what it, I think what it shows us, though, this is not a simple movie with a simple plot. No. And, and in you, fact, there is reason for that, and we're going to talk about it here. I think yeah. let's, let's dive in and let's talk about the extremist plot line. Because that is the kind of the 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 through for thread throughout this entire yep. movie, and and in fact, in watching this movie again, I am surprised at just how well done that plot line is from start to finish, and and it actually is very very true to the invincible iron man that we read last week the extremist storyline that we read from from warren ellis mm -hmm. and in fact that yep. actually was uh you know part of the inspiration for this when when shane black and drew pierce wrote this book they uh, wrote this movie they specifically looked at at that storyline as inspiration but they said one thing that they were going for was a tom clancy like thriller and and that they didn't Drew, Drew, Drew Pierce specifically added they wanted to avoid magic in space because, you know, that's kind of been done, I guess, more than anything. And they said with Iron Man 3 being a techno thriller set in a more real world than even the Avengers. And, and, and I think when it's all said and done, that's why the, the story was, so, you know, the recap was so, so long and like why it, there's so many intricacies to it. And, and you could have gone into even more detail if you wanted, but it is, oh, yeah. it was, it was really well done. I really liked that storyline, actually. Yep. And, and really when you look at how it is, how it is set up and how the action really occurs, most of what Tony Stark does in this movie, he does out of the armor. Yeah. There was the a lot part, less armor than I than I remembered. Yeah. Yep. And even sometimes when the armor is flying around doing stuff, he isn't even in it. He's like remote controlling it from a boat someplace or something like this. So right. but it's it really is more of a like a spy thriller or something that's, you know, an espionage type of thing. It felt like Definitely a James Bond movie. It felt like really a James Bond like movie. movie. Absolutely. You know, uh, that that was the thing that I kept thinking about as I was going through this. Is this feels like a James Bond movie? Yep, and and really that makes sense because you know Tony Stark has always kind of had that that same sort of you know shaken not stirred type of vibe to him. Yeah, or he Tony you know Tony Stark in the comics would make a great a great 007 if he if he decided to be an actor probably so. I I love that part of it, 
and especially in retrospect, I don't remember enjoying this movie as much 10 years ago as I do now. Yeah. But I really enjoyed it. I think there's a few reasons for that, and we can talk about them. I believe that the first couple times my expectations as far as what the Mandarin was going to be and how that plotline was going to work influenced me and i had i had other expectations i think in terms of how it was going to work with with like the young character and stuff like that i will note that i like the way they modified the extremist storyline because in the comics extremists is just given to the terrorists with the expectation they're going to blow stuff up whereas in the movie you've actually got a number of soldiers who were injured and they were given this as an optional treatment to give them a chance to not only uh, serve their country but also to potentially heal their wounds and it's got more of a and i know they the mcu always goes back to this but it's got more of that captain america vibe in terms of how these people got created and most of them did not get into it to be terrorists right i don't think no now did extremists drive them crazy or what happened or was it just that only a few of them ended up coming along for the ride we don't know but yeah yeah and, and i mean these are all like returning war veterans as well and so between that and then this serum they the, you nope. know you very very easily could see how they could have uh, you know, swayed into kind of this, uh, following this leader who, who's look who's bent on kind of world domination. But uh, Maya Hansen, I thought, felt very similar to the comics, and in fact, she at one point kind of like does sort of kind of that that villain turn, like she did in the comics, in that it feels like she was basically gave up their location so Killian can find them. And take and, and take Pepper Potts into custody and and do all this uh, to try and get Stark to do what the what they wanted him to do, which is to help them perfect the serum. That was kind of the 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 impetus was they had it, they had figured it out. It was still not working in all cases, and so these people were just randomly blowing up when they were in when they took the serum. And Tony Stark in the flashback started to write a formula to potentially help alleviate that, but it wasn't all the way, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect yet. And so they wanted to bring Stark on to, to kind of fix it. Uh, I, I really yep. liked it. And the interesting thing was when I was reading about the movie, it sounds like uh, Rebecca Hall, who played my Hansen really was excited about the role and, and really liked how this was, but, said that what she read for and what she thought the character was going to be versus what it ended up being in the final movie was pretty significantly different. In fact, going on saying, I signed on to do something that was a substantial role. She wasn't entirely the villain, but there have been several phases of this, but I signed on to do something very different than what I ended up doing. And so I, I read about some early, early drafts of this where where basically Maya Hansen was the mastermind. There was no Aldrich Killian. And in fact, in the comics, Aldrich Killian is the, is 
the the doctor that kind of commits suicide at the very beginning of the very first comic and is what shakens Maya and Maya calls Tony and then Tony comes and everything like that. Aldrich obviously ends up being a much bigger role in this film and, and Maya Hansen is is kind of downgraded in stature, but there were definitely I, I from the sounds of it some some early versions of this script where where the Maya Hansen character was kind of the the big bat or the big villain or or very close to it, if nothing else, mm-hmm. uh, for for a large portion of the movie. Well, that makes sense actually, because really, I don't exactly know why we needed to have two, you know, scientific criminal masterminds to uh, to make the plot work. So right. It it probably it probably could have been uh, you know anything from they wanted to somehow or another have multiple people in different places and couldn't make it work, or it could be something as simple as the fact that Marvel for a long time uh, there were people even at the top of the corporate chain who just didn't want major roles to be played by women, so they may have just downgraded it partly because they were told to. There, they definitely saw some things that suggested that that might actually be the the one of the big reasons yeah. was was they they didn't know how it would sell to to a mainstream audience. So, um, all right, well, hey, welcome back, folks. Uh, it may seem like just seconds since you heard from us, uh, but in actual fact, for us, it's been about. 24 hours because while we were recording just as Dwayne was getting started on the super soldier stuff uh, which you'll hear again here in a minute my internet went out and uh, the outage lasted something like 45 minutes to an hour and so here we are again so hopefully this will be fine but if there are any weird disruptions it's partly because very difficult to do a podcast from five states away with no internet so there you go we also we also might repeat ourselves a little bit too. Yeah. Not not intentionally, but that is something uh when you're doing it <laughs> finishing it 24 hours later that has a very possibility possible thing of happening. So there you go. Maybe we've gotten smarter in the last little while though, so we'll get a better read on things. I'm I'm not going to hold my breath on that. But <laughs> in any event the other the other thing I wanted to talk about real quick with regards to the extremist plotline was the actual super soldiers themselves. And we only see one in the comic. Only one basically gets the super soldier serum. But in this, you know, there's lots of them, right? In that final oil rig, oil tanker scene, there's probably a couple dozen of these oh. super soldiers. And they all felt very much... Uh, like that one that we saw in the comic, very power overpowered almost, and yep. like obviously Killian and his right man Savan and and Brant were probably the the best of the bunch, but like you talk about the like the generating extreme heat, uh, Killian actually fire breathes at one point almost uh, you know at at Rhodey. I don't remember that that was in the comics, but it it didn't seem. Like, do you remember if that was in the comics? I I don't believe I, so. No, I don't think so. In, in any event, they definitely felt like like you would almost need super soldier serum in order to fight these guys, 
or just, you know, a fleet of Iron Man suits, I guess, is the other way you could do it. Yes. That definitely was an option. So there you go. Yeah, I I was impressed with the fact that, you know, they had to find they had to find villains that were able to stand up believably to Iron Man armor. Right. Which I think they did pretty well. Yeah. The problem is that because of that, the fact that Tony Stark without his armor somehow disabled and survived like four of them in a small town. Yeah. Did seem to me a little bit unlikely. <laughs> I Yeah. I was not uh I was not completely convinced in some ways by that. It almost reminds me of back early on when we were reading some of the Iron Man comics and after he loses his armor and he goes to Captain America and asks for some some, you know, combat training because he's going to go out and try and get his armor back or something like that. Yeah. Like I don't know if he knows how this works, but it it just doesn't seem like we've ever seen Tony Stark be physically capable enough in terms of of taking on super soldiers or regular soldiers that this should have gone as well for him as it did. But but on the other side, they were really cool fighting against the Iron Man. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. All right. So let's let's jump in and talk about some of the things that I don't think worked very well in this movie. And let's start with the Mandarin because you did bring it up a little bit while we were talking about the extremist plotline. And the thing that I, I think is interesting is, is as I was watching this again, for the first hour of the movie, the Mandarin character felt just as terrifying and formidable as he does in the comics. And I was like, this is great. This is this is kind of amazing. And like, I knew there was a turn coming, but I didn't remember how that happened and what it was like. And then I watched the reveal of Trevor Slater, Slattery. And there's still an hour left of the movie. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I mean, the movie. How do you forget that, Dwayne? I Maybe I was trying to forget that, <laughs> but it is, uh, it is hilarious. so just bad. What I, so what I mean by that is you look at like the, the preview text or like the one line kind of introduction to Iron Man three. And it says when Tony Stark's world is torn apart by the formidable terrorist called the Mandarin, he starts an odyssey of rebuilding and retribution. So you're like thinking this Mandarin guy is like really important. And then, you know, you're introduced to the Mandarin and he's this big bad guy. But then he turns out to be this like out of work British actor who just likes getting drunk and sleeping with women all the time. And and it's just. Oh, man, that's a bad taste. Yep. Counterpoint. There is something about this which has grown on me now. Because the Mandarin himself in the comic books is this cringy sort of character that they had to go in and sort of apologize for for years and then eventually sort of completely redo continuity to make work within their universe in the modern world. 
And the Mandarin in the MCU is now also this cringy, weird little character <laughs> that's totally inappropriate and doesn't work properly in the modern world and has to be, like, completely reworked in, in continuity. And so I feel much better about the Mandarin in this movie knowing that he's no longer with us. That if if Trevor Slattery somehow would have gone to Asia and discovered the Ten Rings and truly became the Mandarin in Iron Man 4, I would have probably thrown something at the, at the movie screen, <laughs> right? Yeah. But because they did just let him go, and then later on in Shang-Chi, we actually see that there is a real Mandarin out there. Yes. Whose name has been sort of traded on by these mm-hmm. yahoos with the extremist plot. And he's not very happy about what happened with this and that Slattery right. took advantage of him and, and essentially, you know, used his name and the like. And that made it all better for me. I can now sort of watch this and see it for what it is uh-huh. within the greater MCU. And it doesn't bother me as much as it, it did. I'm, I'm almost sure that's why. It feels like a retcon, though. It feels like they realized just how terrible this was that years later they're trying to make up for it by, by you know, weaving weaving story in to make it make a bit more sense. Because you look at this, and it, and I, I put in the notes, this feels like a bait and switch. It's like we're, we're given this, here's the Mandarin, here's this, this big bad guy, but it turns out he's, you know this actor and, and and you know in actuality we do get a true mandarin in this movie and it's killian he in fact calls himself the mandarin and basically yep. it was you know this trevor slattery was his mouthpiece right he's the real mandarin he's the brains he he you know he's he's the one that's got the ideas and and it, it is putting everything in motion and and yeah, yep. don't worry about that guy. But it just then you have some some like you know attractive looking white guy with no you know claiming that he you know he's a a character that has some sort of uh, you know Asian background, which feels weird to me too. So it just yeah, they, I mean it it's not. It's not even remotely something that you have to guess on this. They obviously, after it came out, were pilloried on all sides. Because comic fans didn't like the fact that they'd essentially just mocked and made fun of a villain that had been a big part of Iron Man's history. People who were concerned about Asian representation and things like that didn't like the fact that you essentially quite literally had a bunch of white terrorists using sort of racial stereotypes of Middle Eastern terrorists and the like as yeah. a way of, you know, fronting their their terrorist plot to help them take over American politics. And it just was wrong on all levels. Even even though there is something kind of cool about about that bait and switch where you think it's this yeah. character that's the big bad and it's not. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they, I don't think they thought some of this through as well as they should have. No. And so, yeah. 
So, so there's some interesting things about the the Mandarin that I was reading about this. So, first of all, Shane Black initially didn't want to do anything with the Mandarin, citing the character's reputation of being a racial stereotype as a specific reason. And it was actually Drew Pierce, his his co-screenwriter, who came up with the idea of kind of the false face, using the Mandarin as a false face for for the organization. Because it feels like a Tom Clancy sort of thing, actually. You know, it's like, here's the one guy that you think's the bad guy, but it's the guy behind the guy that is the real villain. He's the real problem. He's the thing you have to really worry about. He he, uh, he actually, in, in an interview, talked about that. He said he wanted to do an interesting story choice, something that was about our own fear and our own way of viewing villains. What if he's sort of this all things to all people uber terrorists? What if he is the myth? And in the end, what we're dealing with is a created myth perpetrated and cobbled together from popular consciousness. And uh, Kevin Feige goes on to say, you know, it's something really important to break with tradition, even at the risk of alienating some purists. Shane had a great idea about identity, anonymity and false faces. And, and so I... Like I get kind of where they're going with this and and the idea I don't I think has some actual merit to it. It was just kind of the execution and what pieces they decided to use and how they decided to use them that ultimately I think just kind of blew up in their face a little bit. I I have I have no problem with the chain the fact that Chain Black wanted to do something like this that yeah. had that. And in fact I think one of the cool things about Iron Man 3 is that it really does have more things in it that at least try to engage with you on a level beyond superheroics and explosions yeah. than a lot of movies in the MCU. Guys and soldiers right. beating themselves beating each other yep. up at the end of the film. Yeah, no. There are there are a lot of things going on there in terms of concepts that you can pull out and actually look you know, with with PSDD, you know that that essentially the stuff that happened in New York would have messed people up. Throwing yourself into a void where a bunch of aliens were could give you some, you know, some bad dreams as you're moving forward in life, assuming you survive it. All yeah. of these sorts of things, where he's dealing with stuff in in a more real world way. I salute trying that. The problem is that in a popcorn movie. Your problem is that if you try to deal with deeper topics and you don't have the time to really engage with them fully, they can end up being sort of this shallow puddle of undeveloped ideas. Right. And if you take that sort of slurry and it is involving things that are you know, questionable in terms of their racial sensitivity, very questionable in terms of the way they're going to be received by people who have been fans of this particular IP for generations. You just can get yourself in a lot of trouble. Right. And I think that's what happened. The movie, the movie really is trying to do good things. And I think that for the most part, I would say I would rather that a director tries to say something and maybe ends up missing than just decides to be safe and not say anything. But, to to your point, I, I read it somewhere that the first cut 
of this film was in excess of three hours. Three hours and like five minutes. And they cut it down to two hours and ten minutes. So you're talking about almost an hour worth of of filming that got removed before it was finally released. And and maybe that's where some of this makes makes a lot more sense. And I would bet a lot of the stuff that was removed is going to be more talking head, psychological, explanatory type stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's, I always want to watch the three to four hour initial cut of every movie. <laughs> but but un- unfortunately, you know, for the directors, I am in a very small minority with that, I suspect. So, sure. Yeah. So you talked about uh, PTSD and Tony Stark and 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 that's that's where i want to go to next and and i i thought it was interesting like i remembered this being a thing in this movie but i didn't remember to the extent that it was and so like he, you see tony stark from the beginning of this movie is having having difficulty sleeping he's not he's he's having nightmares if he does try to sleep he's Almost, he, he, he like at one point Jarvis says, you know, you've been awake for like 72 hours and, and, you know, you need to get some rest. He's having these flashbacks for, from what was going on in the Avengers. He doesn't want to talk about New York, like at all to anyone. Yep. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually pretty decently well done. And, and in fact, one of the things I think is interesting specifically for this character is that we've seen him drinking in the first two films and, and even a little bit in this one, uh, you know, at the uh, in the flashback and stuff. But after the event, like after the flash forward to like current day, he's not really drinking. It's not it's not that, you know, he's mm-hmm. going on benders or something to deal with this. He's tinkering with suits and he's worrying about pepper and things like that that. It's a bit more almost productive, I guess, than, than kind of. Yeah. But he's killing himself doing he's it. He's killing himself he's not... in the process, yes. But but like <laughs> like you could be a lot more destructive if you're in his yes. situation. And I thought it was interesting that that wasn't the route they decided to go with this. They instead just kind of had him, you know, he's he's staying up for days on end. He's fiddling with uh, you know, suits. He's kind of, you know, bothering, uh, you know, happy about what's going on with Pepper and, you know, just random things just to kind of keep his his head going, right? Keep his mind working, keep his mind busy so he doesn't have to think about the things that he's having trouble coming to terms with. Yep. Yeah, I, for the most part, thought that it was it was nice just that you know, every hero, in order to be somewhat relatable to people, has to have some sort of an Achilles heel. And for Tony Stark, a lot of times it's been his drinking. Sometimes it's just that he's a complete jerk. Yeah. You know? But that doesn't necessarily make you so relatable. And and the fact that he suddenly gets a little bit of that, where this this sort of unbelievable cockiness that he has you kind of see behind a little bit where he where he actually starts to uh you know 
to realize a little bit of just how big the world is out there and that maybe he doesn't actually have all the answers, you know? Yeah. So he's basically continuing now to just try and build up and build up so he can defeat the next time Thanos comes and he doesn't have time to think about it. The The one thing that did not quite work for me, but I understand how they had to do it for the movie, was I don't know how often someone can just basically have someone tell them stop it and get to work and yeah. it fixes everything. Had, I know they did that two or three times in the film, I feel like. Well, and, and at the very kind of near the end, there's a point where he's having another attack and the kid's like, you know, what do you, what do you do? You build things, go and build something. And, and Tony's just like, Oh, okay. And then, yeah. and I don't know if we, he, does he have another attack after that? I think he's just it, sort of, d- yeah, I don't done. think, no, I don't think there's much, much after that. If anything, he just decides himself out of it and starts yeah. to go and build. And then the attacks are over. So that was kind of a, a quick way out of it, but I'm not sure, uh, is, is something that would be too real. But on the other hand, it uh, it had to work. He had to get himself back up and running for the film to keep going. So that's yeah. how that goes. I I wonder though if if you're a fan of Tony Stark and and yeah, I know there's been points where where he's kind of been dealing with this in the comics, but I almost wonder like if you're a cat more of a casual like MCU fan or or you're more a casual Iron Man fan if you don't like look at this and be like, well, you're a superhero, man, just like snap out of this. This, this shouldn't have bothered you as much as it, as it feels like it is. And I, and I wonder, and I, I guess I don't know specifically where all the, you know, kind of uh, negatives to this movie tend to reside, but I, I wonder if, if some people looking at this and are looking at a superhero film and seeing a guy that, they can't deal with it if 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 they had um felt felt like the movie like they like they shouldn't be exploring that like that shouldn't be a problem like why is this in there like i get so, that it's it's possible but that's as we move through the history of marvel comics and you read more and more of this you'll find that that sort of self doubt those sorts of psychological problems that people have to work through are bread and butter for Marvel. You know, the, the yeah. thing has been sitting around brooding and unhappy for decades. And Peter Parker has almost like depression type <laughs> things, you know, that he goes through because yeah. of some of the things going on. Uh, there's been points where he just throws down the suit and the like. Almost every hero has these sorts of doubts. It's actually one of the hallmarks of the Marvel way of doing superheroes. You know, the DC heroes, for the most part, are these gods yeah. that they just astride the earth and, and pretty much never really seem to doubt themselves or think much about it. And Marvel, their heroes do this sort of thing. So I, I agree that I think that, especially when you start talking about psychological trauma and things like this that if somebody's looking at iron man as just a male role model who's supposed to be a man's man you know he he drinks and he sleeps with all the models and whatever this might be difficult for you to place within that context if you've been reading iron man for a long time 
he's had an awful lot of times where he's been down. A lot of times, though, it is more that he's brought down by his drinking or taken down that way. And it all amounts to the same thing, though, where he loses faith in himself and he loses his ability to sort of control that crazy mind of his on a regular basis. The other question I wonder is, is like, I feel like in 2022 to almost 2023, 23, we as a society, I think in the last 10 years have kind of grown up a little bit when it comes to, you know, trauma and dealing with anxiety and self-doubt and, and like all the way to, you know, real bad mental problems. And, and I wonder if we were less sensitive about that 10 years ago. And so then there could be more, you know, grenades thrown at this film because of this. Whereas now you look at it and you're like, well, this is, I mean, they're trying mm -hmm. to be, they're trying to show this and it's, and it's important and that it, it shouldn't be a negative to look at it like that. Yeah. I think that it would be, this film is probably in some ways ahead of its time for at least for action movies and superhero movies and stuff like that. But you know, on the other hand, you look at like the Lethal Weapon movies and stuff like that. They all had these times, yeah. the dark tea time of the soul for for the hero type of element. And I think that if you look though even back to like Moon Knight, you know, the way that they dealt with the multiple personalities and DID and all the rest in the Moon Knight books of the 80s and 90s. There was far less understanding. There was far less uh, work done to actually make sure that you're representing the the actual psychological condition the way it needs to be. You know, I I don't believe I had ever heard the term alter in a Moon Knight book until less than ten years ago. Right. And so comics, yeah, are changing in terms of the way that they deal with a lot of different things. Physical violence, mental violence, all that sort of thing as well. But, yeah, there definitely are differences, though. I think this movie's going to hold up better than people might have thought. If if you haven't watched it in a decade, yeah, you might like it more. Yeah. Let's talk about Tennessee and Harley Keener who is the, the young boy that he befriends while he's in uh, Rose Hill, Tennessee. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I was a particularly big fan of that portion of the film. And I, and like, I get that there was, you know, kind of some story plot that had to occur there. And, uh, and it, you know, served its purpose. And it wasn't, too terribly long in like the grand scheme of things but i don't know i i seem to recall at least it, when it before is that that this part and particularly the Har harley character were, were not very well received am i am i remembering that correctly it's probably true the comic book crowd is especially the online and vocal part a lot of times are 
not big fans of young characters, especially sidekick type characters. And again, that's a a vestigial element of sort of that hatred of comics aren't for grown-ups. Because I think every time you see a kid in a comic book or a comic book movie, the implication is that they're there to be a sort of a viewpoint character for younger kids who are the intended audience of that film. And I think that's 100% correct. That's exactly why they were there all through the 60s, was so you know, Snapper Carr could give kids this person who's hanging out there, snapping his fingers, hanging out with the Justice League, and that could be them, even if they don't have superpowers, right? So you get that that sort of entry point into the story. I don't know how many options they had. If they really wanted to take a trip to Tennessee and make it seem like he was dead, you wouldn't want him wandering around alone because right. then he'd have nobody to talk to. If you make the character like a young woman or something like that, you introduce a whole new plot line sort of thing with Tony and his, you know, sort of the, the way things are with women with him all the time. Yeah. You don't necessarily want it to be just a, you know, some some other male lead because we've already got enough sort of buddies for Tony Stark. So I think that it just introduced kind of a different a different way to have him interact. And yeah. it kind of then ties back into seeing him in Endgame with his, you know, with his daughter, where again he's kind of learning learning to be a person yeah. by that interaction with kids. I, I think the thing that, that struck me is this is not new territory, right? It, it's like this, the having the kid's sidekick is like a thing in, in, in movies in general and, and to a lesser extent action films, it feels like. And, and so it wasn't like, I don't know. It just feels like it happens too often. And, and I don't know if that's just me and or 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 what but i i could definitely see see that as being maybe a criticism but but one thing i will say about it is that harley to me felt a little bit like bucky barnes from the comics like bucky was a a younger kid like this mm -hmm. harley kid was and was you know like helping out captain america and doing things that were important and like you know you had you know, you had him kind of leading him around, telling him where things are at, showing him kind of the the vigil site for the for the, for the the guy that uh, you know blew up, and then you know he ends up like kind of getting taken by by uh, Savan, and you know having him being kind of threatened in front of in front of Iron Man. Nope. Say, it, it felt very kind of almost comic book esque a little bit actually. Nope. Sure. This is a comic book movie. Yeah. So, you know, I, I will, I think the only other kid we really see in the MCU, though, is Ant-Man's daughter, isn't it? I mean, there aren't, when you really look at it, there aren't that many children's roles in the MCU. Well, how young is America Chavez? She's like a teenager, right? Or early 20s. Yeah. 
she's not really a... I guess she'd kind of be in it enough to be a sidekick of that sort. Sure. But I think she'd, yeah, more be like a young adult. Okay. Or, yeah, or at she, least she's a later teen where she's not not a kid. Right. You know? Yeah. So, but but yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I, I will agree, though, it was not my favorite part of the film. Yeah. Even as I'm attempting to somewhat defend it in terms of <laughs> classical plot or whatever, sure. it, it was not it was not great. So I I'm happy that we don't get that in every movie. So if you wanted to talk a little bit about the end of this movie and how it yeah. kind of ties up all of our various strings and plot points and everything. I so it was interesting watching through like the the final minutes after the the oil tanker fight and everything we have the clean slate protocol occur as as you know Tony Stark and Pepper Potts are embracing the the uh the the remaining suits that were active were like firing off and blowing up like fireworks around the the oil tanker he talks about you know fixing pepper you know basically uh rendering that super serum uh inert so that she's back to being like a regular regular person him having the metal shrapnel removed from his chest and then going and throwing the uh the 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 like reactor thing that was in his chest keeping him the shrapnel from getting into his heart uh in into the ocean and then like him ending it, the last words he says, I am Iron Man. And then we see closing credits with shots from all three movies. This felt like the end. And mm-hmm. but it's but it's not the end. I mean, we know it's not the end. There's a lot more Tony Stark and Iron Man in this, but at the same time, it's like it it felt like a bit of a closing of the book almost. Oh, but I mean it really was, you know, if you if you think about it, yeah, we saw a lot more Tony uh, Stark, but it's now been nine and a half years and there's never been an iron man four so you know we we, what we have essentially is almost like an obsession with trilogies in the movie world and comics have taken that on as well where everybody just sort of figures that if you've got your third movie you've kind of done your job that's it you've gotten to the end and so they celebrated and they took off and then and then Tony just kept coming back in these co-starring roles and stuff, I think, because Downey just enjoyed it. He was getting paid well. Yeah. But it is... It's relatively clear that, yeah, when they when they ended this, there was not really a plan that there would be an Iron Man 4. Right. You know? So, I, I didn't remember that, that either. And, but just, like, watching it, I'm like, wow, it... it you would expect watching this, and I don't think I necessarily thought about it at the time. It's like you watch this and you're like, Am I going to see Tony Stark again? Like, are we gonna see Iron Man anymore? I mean, he I, I know he kind of like, you know, jumped in for the Avengers and stuff, but I guess it was still one of those things where it wasn't it wouldn't have been obvious necessarily at the time, but you know, looking back on it now, it, it definitely there's some finality to it. But also, you know, the door is left open so that he can keep coming back. Well, and they already knew kind of that Civil War was coming. And Civil War, even though it's, you know, 
technically a Captain America movie. It's really Captain America 2.5 and and Iron Man 3.5. Yeah. It's, no, they, it is. They are, they are co-major characters in it, essentially. Yes. So, yeah, but, but it is... It is definitely an ending. They they tied a bunch of stuff up, and if he had decided, because there's always the chance, I think that you know, Downey would have said, maybe maybe we need to get this cleaned up, and I'm going to go do something else soon. And they would have been ready in that case. So, so a couple quick things that I did want to want to talk about with regards to this movie that I think are really cool. What? Okay. Bring it on. First, the Air Force One rescue. There is a brilliant anatomy of a scene feature at covering, mm-hmm. co- covering this. And, and it is it's about eight minutes long. You can see it on Disney Plus, I'm sure. It's on the DVD as well. It is fascinating how they did the, the aerial rescue that Tony said. This is the Barrel of Monkeys scene. For yeah, the Barrel of Yes. yes. And they talked about it taking basically 62 plane rides and over 600 parachute drops because they were initially going to do this all in a soundstage and and just, you know, wire people up. And they're like, this does they but they did kind of some initial stuff with stunt people uh, out of small planes just to kind of get an idea of what this would look like and that sort of thing. And they're like. The only way we can really make this work is by actually doing it. So they, th- those people are all stuntmen. They're, they all are in costumes that have hide- hideaway parachutes. And they're doing, filming the scene from multiple angles with different, you know, more and more people, you know, starting off with small people small groups of people, more people focusing on different things. And then they like still had to like, you know, Heather, the first one he he gets, they couldn't figure out how to get her arm to look right as her real arm. So they ended up having to CGI her arm for pretty much like as she's like holding on to Iron Man as they're kind of, you know, moving towards the second person. And so they were talking about like having to redo digitize like the background and stuff because you like you're seeing what looks like ocean and and like the peninsula of of florida mm-hmm. and and it's just it was it was really interesting and so this was a, a very much a live action stunt work combined with an amazing amount of visual effects and and it concluded with stunt work from zip lines they 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 got all 13 people up in these zip lines 150 feet in the air and then just slowly brought them down, and that's that's the part where he's basically just dropping them into the into the water so they don't die. And it is it is fascinating, and it was really interesting to see them talk about it. And they're the the visual effects people that they interviewed. They're like, this is the most. It looks at like, and then I didn't think about it when I was watching it at the time, but it looks like it's pretty straightforward. But the amount of work, they are really proud of that. And, and and if you think about it and you see what they did, it is it is absolutely amazing what they what they were able to pull off. Interesting. I so I have not watched that document, that little vignette thing. I will have to go and find that. This, by the way, 
ties into sort of a, a disturbing question I want to ask you about this movie. Okay. And just see, see how you feel about this. We talked about how, you know, that it may have been that sort of our cultural understanding of certain things has changed in terms of Iron Man and the like, and for why maybe now we would enjoy this movie more than we did before. Mm -hmm. But as I've been watching more and more of the recent Marvel movies, and I've been going back and watching more and more older movies, because I'm just tired of all of the superhero movies, I wonder if it's also possible that the reason why Iron Man 3 wasn't as beloved by us at the time was that we still had other real movies to watch that were coming out. And that, that cinema at that point still had great stuff to show us that hadn't sort of all been taken over by the comic book way of making movies. So, one of the things I wonder is if all movies have been so marvelized, and, and you talk about, like, you know, this sort of practical stunt, and how there's a sense of realism watching actual stunt yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. That's just more impressive. And, and to be quite frank, you know, people are mentioning it and getting bothered by it, I think, more. You know, the, the problems that Thor Love and Thunder had the problems that you had in a lot of the stuff that's going on in Doctor Strange, where some of the CGI just didn't really look that real. The fact that all of these movies, they set the contrast or the dark up so high that everything looks kind of muddy. You know, okay. Iron Man 3 does not look muddy for the most no. part. You've got lots of bright... Iron Man is in this bright armor and he's in the middle of day and it looks sort of more real and three-dimensional and you know, not not like it's made on a green screen. Yeah, the Air Force one would be, it would be at night, it would be like really dark, there'd be like, yeah. if, if this was happening now, it feels like that's how this would get done and you wouldn't really be able to see anything. But this yep. was like middle of the day, sun is shining, it is bright, you can see everybody. You know, there is, I, I, you're probably on to something here because it just sort of feels like, yeah, we're, we're, we're too used to it right now. And it's like, this was still novel back then. And, and there was still more, there was still a lot of stuff being done in a practical, in a, in like a, a stunt work sort of sense. And whereas now it's like, well, they just kind of default to doing visual effects. Mm -hmm. And that's why everything takes, you know, so long and, and some stuff just kind of looks comic book like or comically unreal, I guess is what I mean oh. to say. And we'd be comparing a lot of these to, you know, the the Mission Impossibles and, and some of this sort of stuff back in those days. So I I think that in some ways the grading scale has gotten easier. Because what we're used to and what we expect out of a movie has actually diminished over the last decade or so as we keep getting fed all of these Marvel and Disney products. So, 
I hope that's not the case, by the way. <laughs> but, but it sometimes seems to me like my son and I watched Fifth Element again. A couple uh, of like, that's amazing. That's an amazing It's spectacular, film. and it's goofy. It is yeah. goofy beyond belief. A lot of the special effects are not believable. The, you know, some of the bad guys are just basically look essentially like they're just big plastic pig heads on, on some guys. But it all works, and it's spectacular. And so, yeah, I'm, I am starting to wonder about that. If I was comparing Iron Man 3 to Iron Man 1 when it came out, and it's hard to beat Iron Man 1. Right. But if I compare Iron Man 3 to, you know, Multiverse of Madness or, you know, Thor Love and Thunder, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hold up pretty well. Right. So yeah. there you go. So a couple more things. The president is President Ellis, named after Warren Ellis as a as a tribute to him for being part of the inspiration of, of this of this film. The idea of Happy Hogan's favorite television show being Downton Abbey was actually at the suggestion of John Favreau, who was a big fan of the British show at the time. I love that. Uh the ring on the Mandarin's right pinky was actually the same one Raza wore in the original Iron Man film. Just a, a little tidbit mm-hmm. there. The dragon tattoos on Aldrich Killian on his chest were actually an homage to another Iron Man villain that I'm not familiar with. Finn Fang Foom. Are you familiar? Sure. Yeah, he's, he's a dragon. He's a dragon. So there sure. you go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, most of the suits among the house party protocol were given code names and designs for specific purpose. The Mark 15 through, uh, what's XF that would XL 42. Is that 42 XLVII? Yeah. He was in Mark 42 armor. Okay. Were the suits that received names and purposes. Mark one is supposedly listed as the improvised escape suit mark two was war machine however marks three through 14 were not given names or specific functions little tidbit there jack taggart the unstable extremist soldier at the chinese theater roxon oil and the silver cinch uh scenarian armor were all featured in the 1988 armor wars storyline in the comics we we read that so mm-hmm. I, I recognized Jack Taggart when we saw his his dog tags. And yep. uh, finally, Marvel, the first Marvel Cinematic Universe movie shot entirely digitally was Iron yep. Man 3. So they were they were going bits and pieces before this, but this was the first film shot entirely digital. Yep. There you go. Very cool. And 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 by the way, I'm gonna go. I should note, just in case there's anyone out there who's going to send me an angry email, which feel free to still do that. By the way, I deserve it. Um, fin Fang Foom is not technically a dragon. He is <laughs> some sort of like shape-shifting interdimensional alien or something like this. So, but he looks like a, a Chinese dragon, like one of the classic sort of. Um, one of the classic dragons of Chinese myth with the long neck and he looks a little bit uh, he's got these weird things coming out the side of his head so well so I did want to note one thing by the way 
we enjoyed we enjoyed this one. And if you like Robert Downey Jr. and you like Shane Black, they're actually reuniting for a series of new movies that have a comic book connection. So oh. anybody out there who's interested, uh, there were a series of books written that were kind of like uh, noir heist books uh, written probably in the 60s about a guy named Parker. And the Parker novels actually were turned into graphic novels by Darwin Cook, who is one of the most talented cartoonists in the history of comics. He did a spectacular run on the spirit. He did a number of other things that, uh, like the New Frontier for DC. Black is going to be directing and Downey is going to be starring in a new series of Parker movies based on the same books as graphic novels were based on. And I cannot nice. wait for these because I think they're going to be spectacular. So Parker is, he's a terrible human being is what he is, but he, make, <laughs> he makes really bad de decisions that make for very interesting stories. Sure. Looking forward to that. All right, Dwayne, we are here. I think for the first time in a while, I don't actually know what I think you're going to say for this, but we are at the face-off where we've read the comic books, we've watched the movie, and so I'm going to ask you, we've got Invincible Iron Man from 2004, number one through number six. Those comic books are what introduced the extremist armor. They had spectacular uh, artwork. They had really interesting writing, and so just as a just as a reminder on those, the extremist books were written by Warren Ellis. They were drawn by uh, Eric Granov. Really cool story, wherein we're introduced to basically all of the same characters who were in the movie. Then we have this movie that takes that, throws in a few different elements and the like. Which one did you like better? Invincible Iron Man number one through six or Iron Man three? While I, watching Iron Man three again, realized I did not dislike the film as much as I thought I did. And there's definitely some things here. I am going to go with the Invincible Iron Man comics from 2004. I think Warren Huzzah! Ellis... I think Warren Ellis uh, did a great job of telling the story really well. And in fact, I liked that version of the story better than the adaptation that we ended up getting in this film. I think there were some extra pieces in there that I definitely didn't really care for. Um, there's there, there it just, I, I, I liked, I, I just, I liked the comics more. Uh, the story was better. I loved the artwork there. It was It was just, if I had to spend the afternoon either reading those comics or watching that movie again, I think I would read the comics. I 100% I agree. I think the easiest way to put it in some ways is the comics are the movie with the weird detour to Tennessee with the kid and the Mandarin removed. And yeah. since those were probably the two weakest parts of the movie in many ways. The comics are just all the good stuff. Yeah. Right? There you so, go. So, no, I would I would agree. I, I actually will say I enjoyed Iron Man 3. 
I don't know there's ever going to be a time where Iron Man is on screen with Tony Robert yeah. Downey Jr. in the armor where I will not enjoy it. Yeah. But it it was not the strongest of the Iron Man movies and these were some really really good comic books. Yep, so they win the day. In the day, indeed. Where are we going next week, Dan? God help us. So, we are going to take a look at the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special from last week. Yes. We're back, we're back in the present again. So, we, have you had a chance yes, to watch this yet? I have not watched it yet. It, it was released the day after Thanksgiving. And so it's it's been available for a little bit. So you've got some time. If you haven't watched it, you can watch it and then uh, join us as we talk about it. You have seen it, though, right? I have. I've got opinions. I, <laughs> I do have opinions. I will save them for next week so that everyone can catch up. And then we'll uh, we will talk about it. Well, and with that, that is going to do it for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. If you've been listening for a while, we'd appreciate you telling a friend about the show or leaving us a review. It will help others find us. Have some thoughts about Iron Man 3 or anything else comic book related? We'd love to hear them. You can interact with the show on social media via Twitter. We are at Comics Over Time. We're also on Hive Social at Comics Over Time there as well. You can also reach us via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com. So Dan, early reviews suggest the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special is quite good. You've seen it. You have opinions. I'm looking forward to watching it and talking with you about it on next week's show. All right. See you later, folks. Have a great week. Take care, everybody.